My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Jeremy Utley is an award-winning professor at the world-renowned Stanford Design School, nicknamed the D-School. If Silicon Valley is the mecca of global innovation, the D-School is Silicon Valley's ground zero for educating people on creative thinking. And when some of the world's brightest, most creative, and innovative people want to learn more about creativity, they turn to Jeremy. Jeremy teaches two of the most popular courses at the D-School, Leading Disruptive Innovation, nicknamed D-Leadership, and Launchpad. Given that the brightest students in the world seek out Jeremy for his knowledge, I wanted to do the same. I hope you enjoy learning from Jeremy Utley, because I certainly did. Jeremy, it's so great to talk to you today. Uh, I first became aware of your work at a conference that my wife and I attended at Stanford uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, You gave an excellent talk on innovation and creativity and addressed a number of myths surrounding creativity. And to me, this is such an interesting topic because I think many of us feel like we're not very creative. But in your new book, Idea Flow, you map out exactly how we can improve and access our own creativity. So Jeremy, as you think about the lessons you've learned about innovation and creativity, are there two or three simple, practical, underappreciated lessons that you would most wanna pass along to future generations? Yeah, definitely. Um, One of my favorite cognitive biases, I can say that because I'm a nerd, um, because who has favorite cognitive (laughs) biases, right? Um, But one of my favorite cognitive biases is called the Einstein effect. It was identified by Abraham Luchens in, I think, 1942. So it's subsequently validated by researchers at Oxford, et cetera. But I call this the anti-Einstein effect because it keeps us from breakthrough thinking. And here's the Einstein effect in a nutshell. What Luchens demonstrated, what others have subsequently verified, is that when human beings think of a solution to a problem, the first problem is they stop thinking of other solutions. And the second problem is they cease to be able to see better solutions. And the reason that's such a problem is, as you alluded to, what the research suggests, the greatest variable at your disposal, if you're trying to come up with good ideas, is the number of ideas you come up with. So the more ideas you come up with, the better ideas you have the potential to create. So the Einstein effect is really anti-Einstein because it's a tendency to only think of one solution and then move on. And what I've learned, and the reason it's so impactful to me is what I've learned is if you just push yourself to generate a few more ideas, not better ideas, but more ideas, kind of shifting your orientation from a quality orientation to a quantity orientation, you end up uh, generating much more quality than if you just focus on quality itself. And I could tell a quick story in case it's of interest to your listeners, but there's a a famous photographer named Jerry Yulsman, who's a a professor of photography at the University of Florida. And he did this fascinating experiment where he separated his class in half. Half of the class got the assignment that at the end of the semester, your grade is going to be determined by a panel of photographers. And the only thing that matters is how good is the one image you submit. If it's spectacular, you get an A. If it's okay, you get a B. If it's bad, you get a C, et cetera. The other half of the class, he said, okay, at the end of the semester, the only thing you're going to be graded on is how many images you submit. If you submit more than 100, it doesn't matter how bad they are, you get an A. If you submit more than 90, it doesn't matter how bad they are, you get a B. More than 70, a C, et cetera. And then at the end of the semester, he had everybody turn in their photos. And what the jury was shocked to discover, they, they, they were withheld the information of which group someone was in. 
But what the jury was shocked to discover is all of the A caliber photos came from the group of students who were told, create as many photos as possible. None of the students who were told, submit an exceptional photo for an A, got an A. And it speaks this notion of the most important thing you can do is generate lots of material. But unless you're given that prompt, like the second half of students in a class are, unless you're given the prompt, your default orientation is to try to make one good photo, so to speak, in terms of the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, that's great. That reminds me of one of my best friends, a guy named Nate Hutchinson, roommate, a successful business owner in, in Utah. And we were working together on a project. And I remember showing up to his house and he had four pages of ideas. And it just like blew my mind. Like, wow, this guy is so creative. And yes, like yeah. some of the ideas are great and, and some are not so great. But at the time I was thinking to myself, you know, like, He's so creative and I'm not. But as I've gotten older and I've learned a little bit more about creativity and I hear this story, it's like, well, if I had spent 30 minutes or an hour just trying to come up with more ideas, because I was kind of trapped in this mindset of like, I just need one idea. And once I get my one idea, I'm done. Uh, so that's so fascinating to me to hear about the importance of quantity. I'm over sure. Quality. I'm totally sure if you had read those four pages, not all of them were good ideas, right? That's not the yeah. point. The point is he gave himself the space to generate a lot. And then he has a much bigger consideration set to draw from when it comes down to selecting the one or two that you wanted to implement. Yeah, oh, that's that's fascinating. As you think about other lessons you've learned and in, in, in your book, Idea Flow, is there anything else that you would most want to pass along to uh, future generations about creativity and innovation? You know, I think one of the big challenges that we face these days in this kind of, you know, a modern economy is our definitions of productive and efficient. And one of the things that I've been delighted to discover as I've been studying breakthrough innovators across history is they did a lot of things that didn't seem very efficient. You know, <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright took multiple naps per day, and yet he designed some of the most, you know, iconic architecture of all time, right? Einstein, whenever he stuck on a math problem, he would pick up his violin and he would, you know, play Bach concertos until he broke through. Claude Shannon, who's the father of information theory, famously, when he was stuck, he would juggle on his unicycle, okay? Napping, violin playing, juggling on a unicycle, <laughs> none of those were in my, like, tool set or armory when it came to problem solving before, right? Because I think, okay, I got to work harder. I got to do the pivot table in the spreadsheet. I got to bang out the email. And I'm all about efficiency. And what I've learned as it pertains to creativity innovation is, Efficiency isn't effectiveness. They're very different. And if I want to be effective in creative problem solving, I have to challenge a lot of my own rules as you know, a type A, straight A kind of students. I've got to challenge a lot of my own rules about what constitutes work. You know, as, as an example, Amos Tursky, who is the partner of Danny Kahneman, who together, Tursky and Kahneman rewrote economic theory as we know it. He was once asked, how do you devise so many clever experiments? Because he and Kahneman were rising stars at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. They had these amazing set of experiments that literally rewrote psychological and economic theory. It's where behavioral economics comes from. And what Tursky said when someone asked him, how did you come up with so many great experiments? He said something that really surprised me. He said, the secret to doing good research is to always be underemployed. You waste years by not being able to waste hours. And he was referring to the fact that he and Kahneman would kind of amble around Hebrew University's campus laughing together. And they were widely derided in their field because they're not, quote unquote, not working. And yet all the while they're renting economic theory. But to people who, are, who think about productivity is I'm at my desk, I'm looking at the paper, 
is the only viable way of working, you don't afford your subconscious mind the space to make connections that lead to breakthroughs. And so for me, one of the things that I think is so important, it's the last chapter of the book, but it's my favorite chapter. It's what we call tactical withdrawal. It's all about unexpected tactics for removing yourself from the work in order to make progress in an unexpected and inventive way. Yeah, that's so fascinating because I think about this as in terms of like sleep and napping. So, uh, you know, a lot of research is coming out about the importance of, you know, don't sacrifice your sleep. But for, you know, the time period I grew up in, many people, you know, wore that as a badge of honor. Like I don't sleep, you know, I only sleep four hours a night, five hours a night. It's like, okay, fine. Maybe that works for you. I mean, we don't know the counterfactual of what you'd be doing if you actually got more sleep. But I love this idea. We need to give ourselves space to be creative and uh, understanding the important difference between efficiency and effectiveness. Well, Jeremy. Well, and just knowing like whenever you're stuck, knowing the right way to proceed isn't always think harder. Yeah. You know, I feel like we could we could relieve ourselves of a lot of guilt. I was just talking to a developer the other day, a world famous developer, you know, developing world class products. And he said, yeah, anytime I'm stuck, I go see a movie. Wow. And and I realized, wow, I always feel bad. And I go, do you feel bad? He goes, no, I know that's how I get my breakthroughs. <laughs> and I think if people become aware of the way in which they break through, you know, one simple assignment I would give folks, not to be a, too much of a professor here, but a simple assignment is ask yourself, what's the last time you had a breakthrough? What were you doing? If you had to diagram it, what happened? Oh, interesting. And a lot of times you go, oh, wow. And what if I operationalize that as a process? Because a, a, most of the time they're doing something that they feel like they need to apologize for or that's weird, right? Yeah. But if they realize actually that might be the key to breaking through, then it gives them the permission to do it. Yeah, really interesting. Is I, I mean, so many of my ideas come to me while I'm half asleep, half awake, just relaxing. Uh, well, I think we're all so fortunate, Jeremy, that um, I, I mean, you're you're an incredible award winning professor at Stanford. And we're so fortunate to be able to now dig in deeper to these ideas in your book, Idea Flow. Uh, I know we could keep going, but like I said, I'm, we can all just dig in there. Thanks so much for coming on, Jeremy. I love your book, uh, especially because you're helping people expand their capabilities. And I'm excited to see what I'm able to accomplish as I better implement the ideas that you're uh, sharing. So thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to say for anybody who's listening, if you want a little bit of a tool set, you can go to our our website, ideaflow.design. And we made a bonus chapter available there called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And it's a bunch of cool tactics that those two breakthrough thinkers used that was kind of the cutting room floor of our research process. We couldn't just only tell stories about Jeff Bezos and Steve mm -hmm. Jobs. But there's so many things, inventive, creative things that they did that I feel like when you have an example of somebody who's truly a breakthrough thinker in business doing something that maybe you'd written off before as kind of like silly or frivolous or, you know, unexpected, a lot of times that gives you the permission. So if you go to ideaflow.design, you can pull that chapter down totally free of charge and hopefully it'll provide the inspiration you need to, do, to work differently. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I'm going there today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. I could have listened to Jeremy for hours and I look forward to applying the lessons he shared today. First, when it comes to creativity, Quantity drives quality. We need to fight our tendency to settle for the first creative solution we come up with. Just as the best photographs came from students who took 100 pictures rather than one picture, so too will our best ideas come when we stop settling on our first ideas. By shifting from a quality mindset to a quantity mindset, we'll improve our quality. And second, don't confuse efficiency with effectiveness. 
Some of the most creative people of all time famously napped, played the violin, or juggled on a unicycle when they were stuck on a problem. In other words, they were willing to be underemployed. In the words of Amos Tversky, don't waste years of your life by not being willing to waste hours. What I love about Jeremy's work is that it gives me hope when I have doubts about my own creative ability. Consistent with the theme of many episodes on this podcast, if we want to improve in some area of our life, we probably should spend some time learning how to improve. And when it comes to creativity, Jeremy has demonstrated that creativity is a skill that can be learned. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. <laughs>